but your heart belongs to Rome So for years I've followed you in vain But oh, will you ever know What you are Dos Vidalia, mio bambino Dos Vidalia, mio bambino There is a place where only you alone go There is a world that only you alone know Along an endless balcony Above the Adriatic Sea I tried to storm the Kremlin of your heart In Florence we were on the mend But that mazurka had to end You missed the naked trees of Gorky Park afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm lucky to have Travis Holland here in the studio with us. Um, welcome, Travis. Thank you, T. Thank you very much. Um, so by way of a, a little bit of introduction, um, a Travis Holland's stories have appeared in Glimmer Train, Five Points, and Plowshares. He is the recipient of two Hopwood Awards, count them two, <laughs> and holds an MFA from the University of Michigan. Uh, he lives in Michigan, and the archivist story is his first novel. Um, so we're glad to have you here, Travis. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be thanks, here, too. Thanks for coming. Um, coming to our our little hot box of a studio um, <laughs> on a on a Wednesday afternoon um, so so um, so you're you're going to you're la- you're launching your novel that's right um, next week right that's at, right at shaman drum yes I am uh, the book comes out on Tuesday 
And the very next day, I'm giving a reading at the Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. So. At 7 p.m. That's right. Okay. So everyone show up. Please. Come one, come all. That's right. <laughs> um, but maybe not bring the peanuts or anything, right? <laughs> nope. You got to keep I the store clean. So. I don't think they're too cool with peanuts. <laughs> but they're cool with everything else, right? I think so. I hope so. And will be will Ray be doing the the illustrious yes, introduction? Is. Yes. Ray McDaniel. Yes, the wonderful introductions of Ray McDaniels. That's oh, right. I'm oh. looking forward to it. Oh, so it'll be it'll be a great night. Yes, I, I hope so. And a little bit later on, we're going to have you read part of the novel. That'd be great. Um, and that'll be the debut, right? Because the book isn't, like you said, it's being released next week. That's and, right. Um, and this is your first interview, right? Yes, it is. So I'm just tooting the, the living writer's horn a little bit. Here. <laughs> <laughs> toot, toot. That's good. All right. Um, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming by today. Well, um so, so on your book jacket, it says, um, he lives in Michigan. <laughs> That's right. I do. So, but you're actually, you're a neighbor, right? Cause you went, you went to school here. You went through the MFA program. Yes, I did. I went through the MFA program. Oh goodness. Maybe three or four years ago now I graduated and, uh, I live in Dexter now which is six, seven miles away. Do you frequent the, the mill the, for the apple cider? I take my son there maybe uh, once a year to get some donuts and apple cider. So, yes, I do. Once a year. That's, that's it's quite... It's not frequenting, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> infrequent. It. I do infrequent the mill. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're not doing a, a spot, an advertising spot for the Dexter Mill right now. That's no. for sure, right? Um, well, um, so, so how was... How is like? Did you come to Michigan to to attend the program here? Is that what brought you here? Why yes. don't Why don't we just talk a little bit about um, uh, your your young life as a writer? When sure. did you decide to become a writer? Oh well, um, I probably was conscious of wanting to be a writer when I was ten, eleven, twelve, and have been writing more or less steadily ever since. What were the first things you wrote? Was it Dreadful. like in elementary school? Like, <laughs> yes, I did, actually. I won an essay contest in the third grade, of which I'm quite proud, obviously. No, but uh, I, I wrote um, a lot of short stories uh, and uh, essentially wrote nonstop. I mean, I wrote a lot of dreadful stories uh, without revising. I didn't know that you actually revise a story until I was you know, in my late teens, early 20s. So I turned out scads of uh, dreadful stuff, but that was it, yeah. Well, some people don't really learn the that, <laughs> that hard truth about revising well into their like, That's right. late 20s, early 30s. Until then, it's great fun because you just write, and then it becomes uh, quite a bit more work when you have to revise. Right, right. Um, do you remember any of your, I don't, I don't, mean to like make cool. this like truth telling but do you remember <laughs> any of like what the the terrible first attempts as as the young writer like what they were um sure i i you know i was a big fan uh back then of i guess horror fiction supernatural fiction uh, edgar Allan poe hp lovecraft stephen king i read a lot of his stuff when i was quite young so i tended to model my my writing off that sort of genre um, and, uh, so my first efforts were about terrible things in the woods and, uh, you know, uh, na astronauts coming back from space trip and finding the planet deserted and things like that. So sort of supernatural things. And, and then later on, um, in high school, I began to discover 
Hemingway and uh, Remark, Eric Marie uh, Remark, and um, that All Quiet on the Western Front all that qui- we all it, read. Yes, right. right? It, and it blew my mind, and I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't quite realize it in that way, but it slowly dawned on me that this was real. This is what I really was interested in, and this these were the the most important stories to tell. These real stories, so called. And then. And and when did you sort of discover that? Do you do, is this a historical fiction novel? Is that is, do you? I don't know. Do you categorize categorize your work like that? Because you can yeah. hear that term now. Absolutely, and that's fiction. a good question because uh, you know I never I didn't, and I, I as I was writing the book, I, I tended to resist that term, even though that is arguably a perfect word you know term to use for what this book is it is historical fiction but i just thought of it as fiction i just thought of it as a story that happened to take place at a you know decades removed from our time um but i didn't necessarily think of it as historical fiction it wasn't until late in the process and even after the book was sort of sold and you know working towards publishing it that that term began to you know pop up more and more because other people were using absolutely it to, it was to other people describing it but i'm i'm totally cool with that term. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's good because it's yeah in the publishing world they can say whatever they want because they will right they, that's you right they want really you to tell them, what, them that's right and they will so you're right <laughs> and so when um so when when we were just uh actually talking a little bit before we went on the air um when when you came to the Michigan, you you actually had the the idea for the novel started, and you and you knew it was a novel at that time. I did well. Um, I actually had a draft of the novel, and uh, I had already taken one research trip to Moscow uh, before I even came here. I was living in Atlanta, writing short stories, and, and struggling quite a bit. You know, doing odd jobs. To help pay the bills and uh, working on this novel, which was a long shot in a lot of ways. I mean, to write a book about Soviet Russia in 1938, um, but it was the book that had captured the idea that had captured my imagination. So I had actually written a draft based on research I had done up to that point, and I brought it here with me to the University of Michigan. How did this story? catch your attention because um i don't i don't know much about your background now you've Mm -hmm. said that you were living in atlanta at the time um and your last name holland doesn't necessarily you know scream you know moscow that's right (laughs) that's right um yeah it's funny you mention that because when the when the book was sort of i was talking to some editors about the book they had read the book and there would be a conversation. We would talk on the phone, and it, invariably, during at some point during the conversation, they would say, "Where are you from, anyway?" Mm-hmm. Um, I think they expected me to have a Russian accent or have some <laughs> connection with Russia, uh, a familial connection with Russia. Right. And um, it was really a matter of a story. First off, the stories of Isaac Bobble, the the writer about uh, whom I write in my novel. Uh, his stories, and then when I started to do research and learn more about the Bolshevik Revolution and Isaac Bobel's fate uh, during uh, Stalin, under Stalin, uh, and during the Stalin, uh, the purges at the late 1930s, 
the story sort of grew organically in my head and um so but can i stop you just yeah, for a absolutely. second so so was it that you were reading isaac babel or was it yes. that's his story so you just in because in the course of your own was it just something in your own reading that you were doing like as if you were going to have a, a milan kundera mm-hmm. phase mm-hmm. in a way like where you read everything of his and then is is that what you were doing and then it you connected to babel it was more accidental i i had first read um a story by Bobble. I believe I was you know, my early 20s, 21, 2021, and I, I found this story by a writer who, whom I'd never heard of at the time uh, in a little collection. I read it. It was called De Grasso, and it, it blew me away. It was four or five pages, and it was utterly extraordinary and sort of luminous, like great short fiction or great fiction is. It gives you that sort of charge. And I read it and immediately turned to the the sort of thumbnail biography at the back of all these writers who had been anthologized and only to learn that Bobble had died under at what were then somewhat mysterious circumstances uh, in Soviet Russia. He had either been killed, executed, or died in a, in a prison camp in the, the 1930s, 1940s. So it was like I had discovered him and met someone, you know, met this great writer and lost them in a matter of minutes. Yes. And it, I, I think that stayed with me for a long time. And and did you were you able to find other works after De Grasso? Did you? Yes. You you just went and and read I more did. of his. I did absolutely. And it was, they they were all luminous to you. They were. I I I, I happened upon a collection of his uh, short stories, uh, his collected short stories, uh, in a used bookstore, uh, and uh, some of read some of the other stories like Awakening and uh, uh, Guy de Maupassant. These very mm. small stories, you know, maybe four pages, five pages, and they're just word for word some of the most perfect writing I'd ever read up to that point in terms of short stories. And to, uh, the idea that someone who could write so beautifully and create something so powerful could just be erased, could be killed, executed, and then his fate was sort of a mystery. At the time, the book that I had read, it was a 1950s uh, edition and uh, with a an ex- uh, introduction by Lionel Trilling and Trilling wrote that they didn't really know what had happened to Bobble. His like so many Russians who were killed by Stalin or under Stalin's orders or killed at the time, their fate was a mystery. When once they went into the the prison, the secret police prison, Lubyanka, or, uh, uh, their fate vanished with them. And so at the time Lionel Trilling was writing this introduction, he didn't know what had happened to Bobble either. We, we since know what happened to him. Be, because it, it didn't they, they first say that he was in the Siberian prison camp, as right. a labor camp, as if that was a good fate, right? Like, yeah. That's what they, the, the state released, right? That's and right. And then later on it was found out that he was actually executed a, a year earlier in, at the Lup- Lubyanka prison, he, uh, I think or, he was he or. was imprisoned at Lubyanka, which is where my novel is set, uh, and he was interrogated at the Lubyanka, which is in downtown Moscow. It's still there. I actually tried to walk into the place, my sort of naivete when I was in Moscow. It's still there. Uh, he was actually ex- executed at another prison called Butyrki, which is um, on the outs. Well, it's still in Moscow, but it's in another district. Okay. And uh, he was executed in uh, 1940, just 
months after sort of my novel concludes, the time period that my novel covers, he was executed. I looked that up and I was sort of shaken by that a little yes. bit. Um, it made the, the end of your novel all the more powerful, I thought. Well, you know what? Let's we'll take a short break here. And um, it's funny. It's like that where you're listening, Ann Arbor, to the, uh, the the Living Writers Show, but it also could be subtitled the the Prison Show because <laughs> last week we also Happy. talked about women's prison. So stay tuned for more Travis Holland and talk about prison. Niemand weiß von den Tragödien der Vorstadt, denn es schweigen die Mansarden unterm Dach. Im vierten Stock ein Mann klopfte an der Türe an, doch die Türe ging nicht auf und eine Nachbarin, die sprach, ach, Fräulein Annie wohnt schon lang nicht hier. Warum fragen Sie erst heute nach ihr? Sie sind doch der Herr, den sie uns immer beschrieb. Blaue Augen, frecher Mund, der träumerisch blieb. So lang hat sie gewartet und sie hatte sie so lieb. Nein, Fräulein Annie wohnt schon lang nicht hier. Fräulein Annie wohnt schon lang nicht hier. Warum kamen sie denn nie zu ihr? Sie stand vor dem Spiegel und probierte den Hut. Weißes Stroh und blaues Band, der stand ihr so gut. Doch dann fing sie an zu weinen und verlor. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, I'm here with Travis Holland today, and you're also listening to WCBN-FM. I should give that a little shout-out. I haven't said that yet. Um, so so when right before the break, we were talking about prison. Um, <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> so to go back to prison, yes. um, to talk a little bit more about it. Um, so, so when you took that trip, so you went from Atlanta on your by by your own steam, basically, yes. um, and you know you're doing odd jobs in Atlanta, writing. You've had this connection to mm -hmm. Isaac Bubble, yes. and so are you going to find him now? Is that why you went like the places where he, yes. he was, like the traces of him? Yes, uh, you know, the, I, I I ended up going making two trips to Moscow, but the first trip was really about discovering the subject and just sort of walking the streets that I was writing about. It's one thing, it's it's a difficult thing to write about a place you've never been to. I, I've Friends of mine who uh, writers uh, say the same thing, even if it's a simple thing. You walk down the street and the street is a lot of like any other street, a lot like any other street. But there's something about walking down that very street and seeing the Moscow, seeing the river and seeing the buildings and, and hearing the sound of the traffic. And so I went there not quite knowing what I was looking for. Um, and it was, an utter, it was an absolutely extraordinary visit. Both of my visits have been sort of illuminating and uh, shaking in some ways, it shook, shook me in some ways. But uh, yes, I went to the places, I actually went to the cemetery where Isaac Bobble was secretly buried. 
which is Donskoy Monastery, while I was there, which is, appears is it, in the book. Is it actually, is it marked as well? Or? No, it's it's not. It's a, it's an, un, well, it is now in the, after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, uh, there was a plaque put up, uh, a lo- sort of a large stone monument was put up, but it's in the middle of uh, what is called the newer cemetery in Donskoy, which is a very old monastery right in downtown Moscow with these high pink walls, brick walls or stone walls. And um, there's a church there and there's a, there's a, a graveyard that actually serves, you know, a normal graveyard. But during Stalin's purges, when they were, when many people were being executed in secret, they always did executions at night. Uh, they were burying the bodies, the cremated the remains in this mass grave at Donskoy. And it's believed that uh, Isaac Babel was one of many thousands who was actually interred in that spot. And um, when you were when you were there, well, maybe we can talk a little bit about the research component. Then, sure. of, um, so so I, you weren't as con- you were conscious of getting a sense of the place yes. by the sounds of it. And then on your second trip, did you have? Um, how what was your? Did you have a a list of things that you felt like you? needed to 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 research or how did how did you go about it was it was more by intuition i guess i mean during the first uh i did have some sort of hard things that i did or or not hard but sort of set things that i wanted to do and did that first uh trip which i actually spoke to interviewed people who had uh been alive at the time of stalin's purges and i wanted to get a sense uh of what life was like and I was fortunate enough through the uh, the Sakharov Foundation, the Andrei Sakharov Foundation, to be put into contact with a handful of uh, Russians who had uh, were quite old at that time. What is the Andrei Sakharov Foundation? Uh, the Andrei Sakharov. Uh, Sakharov. He is a, he was a Soviet dissident. He was a dissident who was persecuted in under uh, the Soviet regime in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, he founded this this organization which was set up to promote civil rights and this idea of uh, human liberty. And it sounds like, and give people a voice, like people who Absolutely. wanted to tell their stories, then um, people from the outside or Absolutely. from other countries would have access to them Absolutely. and their stories. Okay. Because one of the things, the, the dilemmas is that a great many of these men and women who went through this, who actually lived with this and suffered through the times that I write about, I merely write about, they're dying. They're of a generation. They're in their 80s and 90s. Uh, one gentleman I, I interviewed, um, he was 94 years old. He was old enough to have actually uh, heard Lenin speak. He 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 remembered hearing Lenin speak. He That's remembered, unbelievable. Isn't yeah, it, really? and Stalin, and um, so he actually had this contact. Um, so that generation is unfortunately dying, and if their stories aren't told, uh, aren't heard, then they're they're lost with them. They die with them. And how did you find out about the foundation? Because that seems like would, did that take a lot of like sort of digging, or was it a lucky break to find out that that foundation existed? Because that seems like it must have been so vital to it, your your work. It was, and it was an extraordinarily lucky break. Uh, I uh, had a contact uh, who subsequently became a, a good friend in Moscow who uh, uh, lives and works in Moscow. And 
he knows a great many people and he actually once I told him that I would like to come to Moscow and work on this book he put me in touch with uh, public relations or whatever at the Andre folks at the Andre Sakharov Foundation and they said we would you like to interview these people we have these people you could go interview them and I was uh, completely knocked out and uh, I would so I spent much of my visit there that first visit driving around with a translator uh, interviewing these survivors and uh, one of the the most extraordinary experiences probably of my life. Do you think, well, is there, um, will this reemerge in other places? Is this something that might be uh, some nonfiction that you'll write as well? Or do you feel like these stories will, um, will you stay with this, this theme or this, this place, um, the, the former Soviet Union, the, or in Moscow, in your writing, do you think, um, Right now, I'm not. I, I I don't know what, you know, what I I usually know what the next project is and the next project. And and to be honest, I, I this is about five years into writing this book. It, it's quite a long time. And um, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean like did you start the stopwatch? You know, <laughs> because when people say that, I wonder if it's like the i the the idea or yeah. like once you've got the idea, then it's kind of five years of plowing on and not yeah. giving up after that or. That's probably closer to the truth of it is the uh, it's probably more like six or seven or eight years. I think we when you write a project and you spend that long with a project, it it, it almost takes over your life to such an extent that you have to set you, you underestimate how long it took, how how much of a hold it had over your life just to sort of make it seem bearable, I think. But it was it was probably uh, more like six or seven years, including the idea and, and some of the initial research. And this is sort of, this is a hard, hard things to, to live with in a way, to be so submerged in, with these stories. And, um, but it definitely feels like in the book that you, um, you have this belief that the, that the literature and the words of the people, the poetry of the people, the, what this needs to, and the reality of the people. Yes. One of your characters even speaks that, like uh, the main character says, "I think oh, we should just be forgotten. We should be the the silent ones." And um, his his mentor mm-hmm. um, actually says, "No, everybody everybody should be remembered." That's right. right. Is Every, that, that's right. Everyone. It's a terrible everything. paraphrasing of a no. lovely section of the book right there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, absolutely. I, I it, it was uh, difficult, and I, I say that sort of hesitantly because I merely wrote. And I researched and I read about these things, and and there are people in, in in Russia alive, and 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 their family, their children, and their children's children, who live with it, um, who sort of live with this in their past. This is their family history. I met a woman um, while I was there, and and she was the children of. She was sort of a daughter of this time. She was in her. 40s, I guess, and maybe early, late 40s or whatever. So she was what we'd had called the baby boomer generation here. But uh, it's extraordinary. Her father was the um, her father was the son of a secret police agent in this little town where they lived, and her mother was the daughter of a man who was arrested by the secret police in this little town. So it was an extraordinary, I and mean, people lived right. The, the very people doing right. the arresting and the people being arrested, 
their children married. It's just it's, extraordinary. It is. It's hard to believe, yes. really, actually, because it's almost as if there's um, there's a disbelief that's operating. Um, because then you think in other areas of human nature, mm-hmm. people really hold on to things and yes. they keep, you know, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so it's kind of extraordinary to think that this this level of maybe uh, denial of what is happening actually must exist so that certainly does you know one of the things that i was struck by every every time i went to moscow was this enormous thing happened you know the years i write or the years that sort of in my book is at the tail end of 1936 37 38 39 were considered the worst years of the purges when thousands of people were just being rounded up tens of thousands of people were being rounded up for no crime. I mean, they, they they were accused of ridiculous crimes, but they had done nothing. And um, it was almost like a, a, a kind of madness set in to this to society. Um, and yet there are no monuments. You would think there would be great monuments all over. You couldn't turn around without bumping into monuments to this thing that had happened. I think in the States, in America, we would we, we sort of grapple with our past in a more open way. I, I, our limited past. Our right? limited like past. Our, much... Absolutely. I mean, there there are you know museums and uh, you know and they're in the forefront as much as we can. But, but there, but you're saying even so in this last century. Yes, you're saying. So. And, and 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 there there was nothing. There was there was a little park that I found where there were some old monuments. It was a strange place because there were. Stalinist era, communist era statues of Lenin and Stalin that were, there was nothing ironic about them. They were the statues that had stood during under Stalin's range. They were you know, under Stalin's reign. I thought many of them were toppled though, weren't well, they? they like, some were of them the were pictures we saw absolutely. on the TV. And... That's right. Some of them were. And, and um, these were, somebody thought we need to save these. We need a, a history. We need mm. to save these so that we have a sort of context and a sense of history. So in this little park, there were these big statues of Stalin, and he was enormous, and there's these huge statues of Lenin, and right next to them were contemporary works by artists who were grappling with the history. So there was one, and it looked like a kind of gulag, barbed wire fence and all these sort of distorted faces looking at, it was facing this statue of Stalin. So here's Stalin, this statue that would have stood in Moscow in the 1940s, great sort of Stalin as they saw him then. And here's this contemporary statue or this work of uh, sculpture with all the victims of Stalin facing him. But it was in this park that was out of the way that barely anyone went to. And and did you, um, well, you know what, let's, let's actually take a short break here, Travis, now, and then we'll come back. You'll... Um, You'll read a little bit for us, please. And um, so you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, The Living Writers Show, and we'll be back. Mein. mein Herz war still und schlief den Winterschlaf. Es wachte auf mit Fieber, als dein Mund mich traf. 
Ich hab die ganze Nacht geweint. Warum lässt du mich nicht allein? Denn ich verbrenne, wenn ich liebe. Und weiß, am Ende wird Enttäuschung sein. Ja, ich hab gefühlt, dass ich dich liebe. Drum hab ich die ganze Nacht. Hi, you're back with T. Hetzel and the Living Writers Show. Uh, I'm sitting here. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're tuning in at the exact right second in time because Travis Holland is going to give us the the world debut of <laughs> the archivist story. And um, where where are you going to s- start, Travis? Just to give us a sure. idea. I'm actually going to start at the beginning. This is the opening of the novel. Uh, and uh, this is Moscow, 1939. So. Um, how did you pick the introductory, the the two um, epi- epigrams in the uh, beginning? Sure. Uh, well, uh, would you like me to read them or read one of them? That, if sure. you don't mind. No, not at all. Um, I'll read. Uh, the first one is from Asif Mandelstam, and uh, he was a poet who was... Uh, I I don't know if you know his work, but he was a poet who was uh, arrested actually under Stalin and and purged, and he died in a a prison camp. But um, he wrote an extraordinary, uh, he has sort of an extraordinary body of work, and this is from one of his poems. You took away all the oceans and all the room. You gave me my shoe size and earth with bars around it. Where did it get you? Nowhere. You left me my lips, and they shape words even in silence. So that was Ossip Mandelstam. And uh, this is uh, the other one. This is Isaac Babel in a final statement before the NKVD military tribunal. This is literally hours before he was executed. I have only one request, that I be allowed to complete my last work. So I thought that was extraordinary. At the very end of his life, that's all he wanted was to finish his stories. He wanted to be able to gather his stories together and write them, or at least put them into some sort of order. I mean, at the moment he was arrested, he was on the verge of actually having a book of short stories ready to publish. And so we don't, those stories vanished when he vanished. So that was lost. And so you, okay, Let, please read for us and sure. then I'll ask you some questions okay. afterwards. Okay, great. This is from the opening. It is a small matter that brings them together, a story, untitled, unsigned, and by all appearances, incomplete, which the arresting officers in their haste must have neglected to record in the evidence manifest. A year ago, when the Lubyanka thrummed with activity, when all of Moscow seemed to hold its breath at night, and every morning brought a new consignment of confiscated manuscripts to Pavel's desk, Such a discovery would have hardly warranted a second look, let alone this face-to-face meeting the archivist frankly dreads. Bobble has confessed. One story will not change that, nor will it save him. Still, Kutirev has insisted the matter be formally resolved, and since Pavel must now answer to the ambitious young lieutenant, the question of authorship is to be settled, if only for the record. 
Already an empty office upstairs has been reserved for the purpose. In due course, the appointed morning comes, just as the first heavy drops of rain are beginning to fall onto the dreary courtyard below. A guard raps once on the door. Bobble enters. I was about to make tea, Pavel offers. On the bureau, beside the window, sit an electric samovar, a serving tray, tea glasses and spoons, a darkly tarnished tin, all left behind by the office's previous occupant, absent now. Behind the desk, where a row of pictures once hung, the plaster is noticeably lighter. Only nails remain. Would you like to sit down? After a moment, as if Pavel's voice has only now reached him, Bobble nods and sits. He is unshaven. A bruise is fading under his right eye, and a faint film, like dried salt, coats his lips. The wilted wings of his shirt collar lie crookedly across the lapels of his wrinkled coat, and this finally, which Pavel finds most disturbing. The writer's glasses are gone. Somehow he had expected Bobble to appear as he once did in his dust jacket pictures. Pavel lifts the empty teapot from the samovar. I'll just get this filled. At first, the young guard standing watch outside merely stares dully, dully at the teapot, as if he has never laid eyes on one before. He is at most twenty, with the sleepy eyes of a peasant, some displaced farmer's son, perhaps, come to Moscow to better himself. Whatever he is, the expression on his face is familiar enough. Water, Pavel sighs, handing the teapot over. He might as well be back at Kirov Academy, standing in front of a classroom of boys hardly younger than this guard, reading aloud lines of Tolstoy. Ivan Ilyich's life had been most simple and most ordinary, and therefore most terrible. Sons of want and privilege alike, born in revolution's shadow, it is his former's, former student's generation now joining the numberless ranks already marching under the banner of collective progress while their former teachers reconcile themselves to silence. In the two and a half years since his appointment to the special archives, where until Kuterov's arrival this past May he was alone, Pavel has become painfully aware of just how fortunate he once was, how blessed. He would give anything to be standing before his students again, book in hand. Thank you, Travis. You're welcome. So what is it like then to have this connection with Isaac Babel and then um, and, and then spend so much time imagining his life um, and in a way as, as like a as a like as a tri your your own tribute to like mm -hmm. the lost stories, maybe. And, yes. and some like hopeful idea that maybe they they still are even out there, perhaps, yes. yet to be found. Yeah, and, and the, that possibility sort of circled me in, a, in a, a strange way, in the strange way that when you're writing something, things seem to turn up. There's that sort of that, that synchronicity. Yeah. I, I remember when I was uh, writing the book, reading uh, that they had discovered the work of uh, a scholar in uh, the sort of far east of Russia, uh, hidden in a wall somebody had at during the the purges uh a, it, this was actually a, a scholar on chinese literature a russian scholar on chinese literature and someone had hidden away all those years ago these manuscripts just put them in a wall of a library where no one could see them and they were re renovating the library moving some shelves and they found this work that it was the only 
sort of extant work that had been saved by this particular scholar at the time. The rest of his work had been destroyed, erased. So I, it was it was astonishing, and and of course I hoped that there would be something of his work left, but so far is nothing has turned you, up. Is that how you um, then got the idea to incorporate that turn into the novel, or had you already? Um, Imagine that, and then you thought, hey, so it could happen. Yes. Were you sort of oh, like vindicated? The latter. I was vindicated. <laughs> I was given permission by sort of, uh, yes. Uh, I had actually thought, you know, I'd already had my plan of this work being saved or the archivist in my story trying to save some of Bobble's work in much the same way that this this librarian or whoever it was all those years ago. And just to sort of see that very thing happening was very vindicating hopeful. And so how is it to imagine the, because did, did you speak to anyone who actually knew Babel, like uh, in any of your conversations in Moscow? Did you? I, I the, 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 one of the uh, uh, people I interviewed, uh, the same gentleman who had heard Lenin speak and Stalin speak at some point during our conversation, you know, I told him what I was there for in, in writing. I was writing about Bobble, and he sort of looked at me and said, oh, I, I heard him speak. I've met him once, and I was astonished. I, you know, I almost fell over. Um, you must so, have had, like, white, a white flash. Go on, <laughs> you know, almost like a... Absolutely. A well, he, this, this gentleman, um, uh, Leg, uh, Lev Gurovich, uh, had been an editor of a a magazine that's sort of a literary magazine back then back a dangerous then. position absolutely to yeah uh because at the time the only so-called acceptable literature under stalin was so-called socialist realism uh the sort of work championed by gorky and uh so if you wrote socialist realism you were okay you were acceptable if you wrote anything else you were counter-revolutionary you were you know you were a, a menace, and so a great many writers either towed the line, which is they wrote the socialist realism dreck. Uh, they wrote children's books, a lot of them, because that was considered safe to write fairy tales, or they wrote nothing. And Bobble actually wrote, he wrote, but he wrote in secrecy, so he wrote nothing. He became what he once jokingly called the master of the art of silence, because he published nothing he published very little during the 1930s. He wrote nonstop. He just published almost nothing. So what is it like then to spend so much time imagining what the, the famous writer mm -hmm. is like? How, what What is that? Because what I'm thinking, what I'm wondering about is the role of imagination. Yes. Kind of uh, versus the, the role of research. And yes. what is it like to spend so much time imagining this person, and how is he yours then? Well, um, the I would say that the he's mine only in that the writer who appears, the Isaac Bobble who appears in my novel, is is purely a work of my imagination. Uh, as far as we know, this meeting never took place. This meeting between my archivist, or these series of meetings between my archivist and Isaac Bobble, never took place. Um, as far as those, those, this idea of research and imagination, where, where you sort of step off into imagination, it is a difficult, at sometimes difficult, uh, sort of conceit because 
uh, you want to write as truly as you can. You want to write as honestly as you can, and you don't want to mess up. Not because you don't, you're worried about people coming and pointing out that you were wrong, but because you owe something, or at least I felt that I owed something to the people I'm writing about in the time. It's, and, and what I owed was to be as accurate as I could be. So what I did was read, I read everything I, I could to try to get a sense of this time. But at a certain point, as a creative artist, you just have to step off. You have to step off that ledge and... and imagine and just start writing otherwise you you don't write anything is there a moment that you can remember where you did that or is it just something that that did now you know happen naturally you know what i i i i sort of tricked myself into writing this book at first because i'd done all this research and i had been thinking about this these characters and the scenes and everything i had this whole story but it's very intimidating to write well, it's very intimidating to write a line, let alone a, a book, a story, or a book, or a poem, or anything. It's So I tricked myself. I told myself that I was just writing notes. I was just going to write a sort of stream of consciousness set of notes about everything that I had learned up to that point and everything that I had imagined. So I, I probably for the first 50 pages, or maybe even through the whole first draft of the book, I just kept telling myself, this isn't a novel. These are just notes. So it went easier that way. Whatever you have to do, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, get black on white, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, let's let's take um, another short break, and then we'll be back uh, with the Living Writers Show uh, talking with Travis Holland. Il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rose. Il me dit des mots d'amour, des mots de tous les jours, et ça me fait quelque chose. Il est entré dans mon cœur. Une part de bonheur dont je connais la cause, c'est lui pour moi, moi pour lui dans la vie. Il me l'a dit, me l'a juré pour la vie. Oh. Et dès que je l'aperçois. Welcome back to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel. I'm here with Travis Holland, and thanks to engineer Chaz Barrett um, and to um, Pink Martini that we heard to kick us off, and then a That's little right. Marlena Dietrich, who's not quite <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Right. I guess if you're in Michigan, it's at least a bit <laughs> That's closer. Right. That's right. Um, so, so talking about so so we've kind of gotten into your writing process mm-hmm. a little bit, like how you you trick yourself and uh, uh, um, to get to get going and to mm-hmm. get through it. And um, 
when I was when I was looking you up, when I was researching you, Travis Holland, yeah. <laughs> on the web, um, I, the Plowshares mm-hmm. um, uh, site came up with your story, The Dream of the Revolution. Yes. So I had the experience of reading that story after reading your novel, mm-hmm. and um, and I kept thinking, well, I wonder what he's up to with like what why the technique of the young reporter. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Uh, just a few minutes ago, we were, I was talking about the notes that I had written to sort of trick myself into writing this novel. And the, those, the, that story, Dream of the Revolution, actually, those, that was part of the notes that, was, that grew out of that process of just imagining Bobble. You know, you, we talked earlier about how do I write about Bobble or someone I don't know or coming to know someone through the research. And I think that was one thing I tried to do was... I tried to get into his head, this writer who in many ways started out idealistically believing in the revolution, as so many Russians did. One of the great tra- tragedies of this story in this time is that a great many people believed that they were changing the world, that they were actually changing the world for the better. Um, and and that the sacrifice would be worth absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, um, and they sacrificed a great deal. I mean throughout the Soviet era, but particularly at the beginning when people were dying and people were risking everything to throw over this old regime, um, they believed in it. And Isaac Bobble, very quickly, as he was riding with the Cossacks and he was riding in the Polish Civil War, he was sort of, he was a reporter covering it. And um, he very quickly realized that the, uh, the revolution, the ideals of the revolution were, were deeply corrupted were being deeply corrupted by actual facts in, in the way that most a great many revolutions are once pe- revolution becomes almost an excuse for revenge uh, for past wrongs and so I was trying to imagine that time in his life before the the, the period that I write about in my novel um, when he was still young and idealistic and, and he first began to understand that the revolution thing he was had been working towards was was actually corrupt. Was it more of an exercise then? Um, so for you to, like you said, get inside his head to yes. know him better, or was it was it an idea? Was it an idea? Well, I'm going to have these separate short stories that will be companion pieces. Um, not that you could think this far ahead, I would yeah. think, but like you wouldn't say this is a companion piece to prepare people for my coming novel, or or did you think it would have a place in the novel itself? These... Uh, I, I I thought uh, you're right. I I didn't quite know what what it would be at first. I mean, I, I I but eventually I did think that there might be a place for it in the book. At first, it was a way of getting in his head. It was kind of an exercise. Um, and then it became a thing unto itself. It became a story, and I, I thought, well, I'll stick with it and and until until it's finished. Um, and then eventually, I thought of incorporating it into the novel because there is this story in my novel, the unfinished story that I I mentioned in my the reading. Um, and at first, I thought that I would incorporate that unfinished story, let the reader read that story. Um, and work that into the story, but you mean there's actually pieces of this 
that, that you were able to read this unfinished story? No, I, I was not. This was the story I was imagining, and I, oh, I, I sort of okay. tried to imagine a story that Bobble had written, and I imagined this to be the story that maybe Bobble had written. But I quickly realized that... So you were actually going to try to write in his voice as well yeah, then? Yes. Travis, which, okay. Yes, which, All right. So yes. I just wanted to make sure I was yes. getting it, what you were saying. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so I was going to try to incorporate this Bobble story, so-called Bobble story that my novel alludes to. I quickly realized that that's, a, that's an impossible task. I can't write Bobble's story. Bobble could write his story. And in a way, my novel very much is about the lost story. Not what we have in front of us, not what we know, but what we don't know. And in a way, that is, you leave that to the, to the reader's imagination, that is a, a much larger thing than I could ever write, which is the lost story. Let that lost story be anything their reader could imagine, Just particularly readers who know Bobble's work and love Bobble's work. There are a great many of them out there. Yes. They could imagine what this story might be. And I thought if I tried to write that story, it would just come across as a poor facsimile so or it's or maybe even be a somewhat a, not as powerful as how you're leaving it with the imaginative Absolutely, yeah. quality yes. right like it has more power this way i think that's a very wise decision I so. and I, I i think it was wise not to ever even try to write a bobble story <laughs> oh, come on. don't you don't you try like when you're at home I try. sometimes yes that's that's for the wastebasket oh i try a lot <laughs> friday <laughs> nights writing bobble <laughs> yes, that's right it's fun oh. well so what is um so what's your what is your next pro like well you said that you don't necessarily what's next for the archivist story like what will your life be like now with the book because it's finished it's mm -hmm. published yes and you're you're launching it next week. Mm -hmm. So what uh, now? Well, I'm giving a, a reading here in town next uh, Wednesday, a week from today. And uh, I'm giving a reading down in Atlanta uh, at the Margaret Mitchell House uh, in July. And, and then I'll be uh, at the, uh, possibly be at the uh, Wisconsin Book Festival in the fall. Looks like I'm going to be there. But so far, uh, don't have, you know, really anything planned except those initial readings uh and i'm working on a new book that's mostly what's occupying me is working on a new novel so oh well that's that's wonderful that's the that's the important part uh is the, so. is the work the ahead too yes is it um can do you have any um uh, i don't want to be if, if you have a superstition about it i yeah. won't ask you but is it um but do you is it completely unrelated to moscow or bobble or like, yeah yeah it is it is. Um, and uh, so I think after the sort of long process of writing this book, I was ready to um, work on something entirely different. Uh, I, I'd never set out to become a writer of, you know, Russian, or, you know, write about the Russian Revolution or, or, or the purges. Uh, this was the story that seized my imagination, and I wrote it in, as well as I could until it was finished. And by the time I finished it, I, I had other books, other projects that it, it, you know, that I wanted to work on as well. As any writer, as you know, or anyone knows, there's always the next thing. Always seems so much better. Than yeah, what it's you're the working. shiny object, it's right? It's the garden that you can go sit in and relax, you know, after your work. Are you able to work where you have some of those projects started at various levels of, um, you know, life? You know, they do they, or do you have to actually just? note note them and then go back to them after the main project is it, yeah it's more like noting them 
okay. sort of place marker in my imagination and maybe doing some initial research um, because I, 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 I've gotten I'm quite taken with research. It's a nice process and I, I enjoy it quite a lot. It's learning, discovering more things about your story. And there's a strange way in which the more you learn about a particular subject, historical or any contemporary, there are these moments you have where you discover something that seems to speak directly to whatever project you're working on, almost as if it was written or for your project in mind. And, and so that's a great experience. So I, I do some research, um, but mostly I, I put it off until one project is finished. So uh, the, the book I'm working on now is, has been waiting a, a quite a while. <laughs> so. And and is it are, do you find that you're you're going to work in sort of this historical setting like pick is that like a mode that you would work in or is this um well uh no I I I don't think so I I I have written stories that are more contemporary and set in the states and um it's really just about the a, a given story whatever right. that story is so whatever the be, story requires yeah it could be contemporary or it could be historical um as long as the story interests me enough that i'm willing to dedicate years you know which is what any writer i uh, years or weeks or months you really have to care about i think so. well well thank you for being here today thanks for having us, me travis and um and as you mentioned, you'll be at the Shaman Drum Wednesday, June 20th, 7 p.m. So that's next week. That's right. So everyone, come on out. Please. And uh, let's see. Um, oh, I, you know, I wanted to ask you one quick question before we go. like uh, Because I noticed um, that your book is going... is. Let's see. It's the Dial Press here yes. in the states, yes. right? And um, and then Bloomsbury is your international publisher. It's a British publisher. Um, so and the Australia, New Zealand, and and I guess British. There, the cover is very different. Yes. Um, how do you feel about the covers of your books? Like what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I know this is up. like a random superficial no, a question good... at the end. <laughs> uh, the cover... Do you like the color pink? What uh, do you think? Or blue? It's all right. Uh, no, the covers. It's an interesting thing. The, I like the covers from both. Uh, uh, the the British uh, version, which is Bloomsbury, and the and and the the one that Dial is putting out, I I love both covers. It actually uh, was published in France uh, in in I believe it was January February. Oh, first and, and, yes, already, yes. okay. And so uh, they have a different cover. It's in it. The French version is called Lubyanka, so they don't. Oh. It's not the archivist story. It's Lubyanka, and they have their own cover which is quite understated and and i i think quite uh, affecting but uh i'm i'm pleased with the covers uh it's a process as any writer knows it's a process of you know dealing with the the book is yours and it's everything you want and then when you get into the publishing aspect of it then it becomes more of a group effort and you have other things to work on other people to work with so well well thank goodness the interior is what it is yes. then <laughs> well thank you travis holland thank and you and thank you ann arbor for listening and for those streaming in florida seattle bermuda atlanta um and you're listening to wcbn fm the living writer show um until next week thanks Zag mi adieu, frag nicht und geh, 
es tut mir weh, wie dir. Dürr wird das Gras, Glück ist wie Glas, und es zerbricht wie wir. Was man gewonnen ist bald zerronnen wie Schnee im Sonnenschein. Drum sag mir adieu, ich weiß es tut weh. Speech Radio News is experiencing difficulties today, so um, we're going to keep looking for it over the course of the uh, the next half hour, and if possible, we'll broadcast as much of it as we can. But um, for the time being, just to get you your sort of um, radical politics fix, uh, I'm going to play some Noam Chomsky for the next. Uh, oh well, whatever's necessary. going to be a hard act to follow, but thanks. <laughs> uh, I guess I have to begin by saying